Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back to Black's History Week. Is there anything a 21st century military strategist can usefully learn from the tactics of Hannibal or the age of pike, sword and musket? In this edition of Black's History Week, Professor Jeremy Black offers the critic's deputy editor, Graeme Stewart, a crash course in the history of war. Professor Jeremy Black, uh, you have written a short history of war, which is published uh, this month. Um, Let me start with a deceptively simple question. What is war? Actually, that's not that simple a question, and it's a very good question. So uh, let me say, I think I would define it as organized, large-scale violence. And the reason I would use that as a definition is partly um, in response to the way in which war has been, in my view, misused in order to describe anything that's the equivalent of an effort, war on cancer, war on crime, war on COVID, or whatever, or, you know, our Prime Minister urging us to be resolute against COVID as we were in the World War, which, quite frankly, was, I think, an insult to those people who served, fought and suffered in the World War. But, you know, let's not make a political point. There'll be plenty of time for others later, no doubt. Um, But the... um, So if one's talking about large scale, one's distinguishing it from the actions of an individual or small group, which might be deadly. You could put poison in the reservoirs of a major city, um, but I don't think that that would be helpful to describe as a war. If you're using the term organized, it takes you away from, for example, inchoate action by a large football crowd, which might well be extraordinarily damaging or even deadly. uh, And there could be tens of thousands of people involved. But I don't think we would be happy to use war in that context. But the key thing that I've not mentioned, and I'm sure you're aware of this or listeners are aware of this, is that I've not mentioned it anywhere in any respect the state. In other words, large-scale violence, organised violence, is not necessarily a monopoly of the state or a definition of the state or a definition uh, of, in some ways, if the state plays a role as a definition of war as opposed to something else. And I make that point because I think that too often war is discussed in terms of statehood, statecraft, state policy, and as it were, the formal forces of the military accordingly, you know, established armies, established navies, and so on. And I think that that is a travesty of the subject. I think that it is a culturally very specific one, and I don't think it helps us to understand war as a phenomenon around the world and across history. And that's what I've tried to write about. I mean, you kindly refer to that book. Um, I think it's always interesting. I always find it interesting anyway uh, to ask other authors how their books fit in with other things that they have written. And 
Um, I'm, I think it's fair to say that that's an issue for me because I've written a fair amount of stuff, including a large amount of stuff on military history. And what I've tried to do in the new book is to write what I would call a crossover book. And a crossover book is one designed for a wide uh, public, but illuminated by the knowledge one derives from research. I don't think one needs to put the research there. This is a book written without footnotes, but it's a book that rests on several decades of research and writing. Um, and I think that that's an important approach because a lot of the discussion of war in generality um, is not, in fact, very research-based. I can think of Margaret Macmillan's book, which uh, was extensively uh, reviewed and was the basis of the, uh, the Reith Lectures. But in fact, um, as I pointed out in my review in the Journal of Military History, it was not exactly uh, showing any real knowledge of the subject. Or you can see other books uh, on the subject, which are very much those of a Eurocentric, or I should say Eurocentric plus the United States, maybe Western-centric approach. You can think of Michael Howard's work there, um, in which in common with a lot of military historians, he's not, he doesn't seem really interested in such remote and inconsequential, I'm being ironic here, uh, countries or societies as China or India, unless and uh, they fit in with some Western paradigm. Uh, and even then, not really. Um, and I don't find that helpful either. And um, I think that it's important when you have an opportunity to write about a broad global subject that you should put your uh, flag on the mast. And this is intended as world history. It has, as any attempt at a, uh, will have, uh, weaknesses, but I've tried to give what I regard as fair coverage to different parts of the world without having some sort of naive sense that there is some pattern that diffuses from one to another. Yes, well, I mean, certainly reading your short history of war, it's astonishing. It's about 250, 260 pages long. It's astonishing, uh, not just your breadth of chronology, but, but your understanding of of the global nature of war you discuss it in in africa in asia uh, in, in the americas uh, and so on I, I want to ask um a, a number of institutions now have a subject called war studies it, is that different from military history and how is it different from military history well I think that's a very interesting question. I mean, possibly we ought to ask those who teach there, but to me as an outsider, because I'm not a member, of, I mean, I'm now retired obviously, but I was never a member of a war studies department. As I understand it, war studies tends to focus much more on the here and now, whereas military history tends to have a more historicist approach. Uh, I mean, to my mind, both of those are valid. Uh, I think they're valid, uh, in particular, if they're linked. So if I might comment on military history from the perspective of the present, one of the points I've made in other books, because, uh, you know, I've written other books that are, are on the subject, on the theory of the subject, is that the as the present changes, 
So historians who often are singularly little able to think outside the box of presentism tend to respond. So in the 1990s um, and late 80s and very beginning of the 2000s, you had a technological triumphalism. Uh, this was the period, of course, of uh, the so-called revolution in military affairs, linked of particularly with the United States and its power, um, uh, and the idea that there'd been a fundamental paradigm shift with uh, new technology. And that was then read back into the past with people seeking earlier supposed revolutions in military history. Um, um, and you, know, you can see that with classic books of that period, such as Jeffrey Parker's book. Then, of course, we have in the 2000s, uh, the revolution of military affairs rather runs adrift in the seas of Araby or the sands of Araby, I should say, the sea sands of Araby, so that um, you get a, uh, a uh, instead you get an interest um, after the problems encountered, problems Western forces encountered in Iraq and Afghanistan, you get what I called in one of my books, the cultural turn, an interest in the idea that um, success in technology was constrained by the need to consider different cultures, their particular assumptions about war, etc, etc. And I've, I've written about that in some considerable extent. And obviously, in that context, the books on military revolutions in the past, which anyway had been highly problematic and deeply flawed as an analysis of the past, also didn't seem particularly helpful in order to understand the present. Um, now, uh, it may well be that at the present moment, when we're moving towards um, confrontation between uh, leading economies and their militaries, when we've got an interest in new weapon systems like hypersonic uh, weaponry, it may well be that we get a shift. I don't know. My own view is that many of these shifts are over-ratcheted, that the practicality is that you need an analysis of the present that comprehends both culture and technology, um, and gives independent causative um, value and contextual force to both of them, rather than counterpointing them in some crude fashion. But you know as well as I do, Graham, that counterpointing in a crude fashion um, is seen not just in journalism, but it's seen in academe. It's just that the academics prefer to think of themselves as in some way better than that. Um, so I think that the uh, reality of a global account is that it undermines any attempt to produce a single causative analytical structure, or even often a complex analytical structure, because you're talking about a diverse phenomenon which occurs uh, you know, across the world, um, throughout uh, civilization, and across time. Well, I, I want to just zone in on, on the, the way in which technologies change conflict for, for a moment, and to ask, really, what, what can a, a 21st century soldier or military strategist, what, what can they learn for their own practice of arms by reading about the wars of Gustavus Adolphus or Hannibal? Isn't the, the difference of technology so great that the, 
the strategy and tactics of the, the age of elephant or the age of horse is, is just too far removed to be of other than academic curiosity to, to the, the modern soldier. Well, that's a very interesting question and cuts to the point about military history. Several things I could say about that. Let's separate out the strategist from the soldier, shall we? At the level of strategy, I think what one sees um, is the nonlinear character of change, uh, the extent to which, um, to use a Clausewitzian term, but you don't really need to, you know, Clausewitz was obviously just stating the obvious, um, that friction or whatever uh, you mean by friction, events, contexts, the, the confrontation with <laughs> opponents uh, lays waste to plans. Um, and also, I mean, you cite both Hannibal and Gustavus Adolphus. I realise you've just chosen those by chance off the top of your head. But in the case of Hannibal, uh, frequent victories did not lead to war victory. I mean, it was particularly ironic that the Germans in World War One thought in terms of trying to recreate another Cannae, because, of course, Cannae had brought Hannibal a great victory over the Romans, but he lost the war. So, um, and as far as Gustavus Adolphus was concerned, um, Sweden emerged more powerful from the Thirty Years' War, uh, but it certainly had signed up when he invaded Germany in 1630 uh, to a long struggle which put enormous pressure upon it. And I think, um, you know, the hopes of rapid victory uh, did not, were not, I mean, he was killed obviously at Lutzen in 32, but the hopes of rapid victory were not fulfilled. So that's at the level of the strategist. At the level of the individual soldier, I mean, quite clearly, in part, uh, you've got a dependence upon um, the sphere in which you're operating. Um, there are some spheres of combat, uh, aerial combat, submarine combat. Um, probably we're going to be talking about um, increasingly about cyber combat, which, of course, there are no immediate um, uh, earlier for you know, things to think about, um, uh, prefigurements. Um, but the idea, and you saw this idea developed in um, the face of battle, um, the idea that, the, that what war shows you is the importance of morale, fighting cohesion, tactical adroitness, this is at the level of the individual soldier as opposed to the strategist we've already been talking about, is equally exemplified across history. I mean, you can have a different um, environment and you can be uh, exposed to different lethalities, but the same points uh, emerge. Um, and indeed, I mean, it's interesting that you use the term strategist and soldier, and I immediately revert to talking as if we were talking about regular armies. But given that uh, a lot of the forces operating around the world today, as in the past, were irregular forces or forces at any rate, which were not those of formal states, then they also can look to the past for indications about how uh, one might succeed. Um, and the classic one for certainly the strategist in that context is the notion that simply by keeping going, you remain part of the political equation and therefore you close off the option of victory to your opponent. And I think that that is something that's a very important le uh, lesson um, for the past. It was understood by uh, Mao Zedong. Um, um, again, 
what he wrote about war was not particularly original, um, but it was understood by him, and because he was an important figure politically, it therefore was consequential. Um, in the 21st century, are we um, military strategists, those uh, who are at uh, military academies, are they all being taught the same basic tests, wherever same basic texts, wherever they are, um, in, in terms of military theory? So is everyone, maybe you're in China or, or West Point, are you all being kind of groomed on uh, von Clausewitz and, and Sun Tzu's Art of War? So in, in a way, everyone has the same basic platform of knowledge, do you think? Or um, is there an asymmetry in, in theory in different parts of the world? Oh, that's a really interesting question. Well, let's start off by saying, reverting to what I just said about irregulars, I don't think you'll find that Boko Haram is using, is, is you know, referring to Clausewitz. Um, and I'd be surprised if the Taliban is looking at Jomini, you know, so, you know, there's, uh, so I think partly, but when you are talking about the formal education, I mean, there is obviously an interesting interaction between domestic uh, texts. So if you go uh, to France, go to places like Sancerre, you will find there is obviously an interest in French theorists. And there were French theorists, for example, people on naval warfare. Um, there are good French theorists of the 19th century who were rather different in their approaches to those of, say, Maham, you know. Um, so you could find that, but your root question, which is, are too many people paying too much attention to a small number of texts, particularly Clausewitz, in what is a, um, a sub, and I would add the same thing in military history, there's too, too much attention played to too many, sorry, to too, to too, you know, too much to a small number of texts like the military revolution. I would say, yes, you're right. Um, and I don't think it's particularly helpful. I don't think the uh, relationship between output and outcome, which we've discussed, is adequately understood. I don't think there's enough of a discussion about the concept that we've also discussed of fitness for purpose. I mean, I was privileged for many years um, to lecture to the strategy and policy course are run by the American Navy, and it took me to all sorts of exciting places, I mean, including Hawaii, several occasions. Um, and they had made what I thought was, and I'm not just saying this because they employed me, because they no longer employ me, um, but they had made what I thought was a very interesting selection of case studies, including ones that were not naval, I thought that was particularly interesting. Um, they, in a sense, were constrained uh, to start off with by the standard Western tradition. So they started with Thucydides. But under the impact, I mean, I started with them in the 90s, but under the impact of 9-11 and the subsequent interventions in Asia, uh, they did make much more of an effort to try and have texts that would help their students. And the students we're talking about are people at the level of captains of ships, 
and it was open to the other services, colonels of regiments, this sort of level. We're not talking about starting cadets. Um, I thought it was actually a very wise selection, uh, but obviously uh, it's one that you have to keep continually alive. Now, I think it's fair to say that Mo and I don't wish to be invidious about other countries, most countries do not seem to engage so much in the military cultures of around the world. And that can mean that you hit a problem when you go to war in a context in which you assume the other people are going to be thinking in terms of the equations of force and result that you think are pertinent, and they may not be culturally, um, however you wish to understand culture, nature or nurture, they may not be culturally thinking in the same way. And I think that has caused us problems I incidentally think it's an issue in relations with China, because although there is more symmetry in the weaponry that is being developed, both traditional platforms such as aircraft carriers and new platforms such as advanced missiles and advanced drones, nevertheless, I think it would be a mistake to assume that the Chinese policymaking and military system conceives of conflict in the same way that the United States does. And, and can you just flesh out a little uh, how, um, to give China as the example, there is that different approach? Well, I think, first of all, are we, are we talking about China now or China? No, China, China now, China, or at least China in the last uh, few years. Right. I think it is very important to uh, understand the consequences of a authoritarian party state. Um, so by, I think the two of them are very significant. It's authoritarian, but it's also a party state in the sense that there is a definite ideology. And whereas uh, capitalism and the consumerism that goes with it has affected a lot of Chinese society, the military uh, are much more attuned um, to the um, communist monopoly of power and the, um, uh, the idea of force as a state activity than might be suggested if you were thinking of China as a pseudo-capitalist state. And what I think that means is that there is a greater willingness to use force um, without considering constraints that we might understand, whether those constraints are those of international law or those of domestic accountability, both of which are factors for Western societies. Mm -hmm. Well, in recent years, particularly this century, we've We've got used to conflicts which have been examples of asymmetric warfare and uh, the, the asymmetry is, as you just discussing now, an asymmetry of thought and experience, but also obviously an asymmetry of technology. Um, I wonder going further back how quickly the technology gap um, shrinks. So, for example, 
Uh, let me give a couple of examples um, in the in, in the conflicts of the scramble for Africa, the European colonialization of Africa. Uh, there's a huge asymmetry of technology um, when the European powers arrive. Um, I, I wonder how quickly that that gap starts to shrink as the, as the arms market um, you know, delivers weapons to. Uh, developing world countries and, and going back perhaps to um, you know, the, the 16th or 17th centuries in, in, in Europe, you know, how quickly technological advances, uh, which may have been pioneered by one army or, or one um, a nation state, uh, you know, how, how quickly the, the, the opponents um, got hold of the same arms and the same techniques and therefore the level playing field was uh, recreated. Right. Well, that's fascinating. It, issues of diffusion within and between um, uh, cultures are really interesting. The diffusion being not just, as you correctly say, you're absolutely right, not just a matter of technology, but also of technique. Um, so can I start off with Africa and then subsequently uh, go to the 16th and 17th century Europe? Because these are very, very, very big topics. Um, you shouldn't necessarily assume that non-Western societies, whether in Africa or elsewhere, could not obtain um, effective weaponry. And you shouldn't assume they were necessarily unsuccessful. I mean, when the British invaded Egypt, the Egyptians had um, Western cannon, they had uh, Western rifles. Um, when the Italians attacked uh, Ethiopia or Abyssinia and were defeated at Adowa, the Ethiopians had been armed by both the Russians and the French and they had good weapons, though that was not why they won. And that's the next important point. You don't need to have better equal whatever you might mean by technology in order to win, there can be a number of reasons. Incidentally, may I just say, I watched, um, because my wife was interested, the, um, uh, uh, the Stuart piece on Afghanistan. And he Stuart, yeah. Yes, he interviewed William Dalrymple saying this was the only example of a uh, um, major defeat of a Western force in the 19th century by a non-Western society. That, of course, is rubbish. Um, I mean, you can think an obvious example is the absolute crushing of the Italians at Adowa. Uh, and I'm afraid to say there were a number of other significant errors there. So I just mentioned that because I know a lot of listeners will have listened to that. And I mean, Dalrymple may know a certain amount about India, but you, you shouldn't really, he doesn't really uh, travel well, if you see. Um, now, so in the case of the 19th century, the, um, and you're asking about a closing of the technology gap, if you are going to put your emphasis on technology in terms of um, the weaponry that helped, for example, the British to, let's say, defeat uh, the, uh, the independent emirates of northern Nigeria, um, that kind of technological gap is still there at the time of independence. If anything, it's gone, got greater. 
if you think about it, in the time of the great bolt from empire, to use that term, of the late 1950s and early 1960s, simply in technological terms, the British were capable of dropping free flow, free uh, dumb bombs, free fall bombs with nuclear warheads. Um, when the British attacked uh, Egypt in 1956 in the Suez Crisis, the British were using aircraft carriers, advanced aircraft um, bombers. Uh, they were using helicopter-borne assault troops, and yet it didn't work out. And that was because it's not simply changes in the military factors that are important to conquest or conversely, the end of rule. There are a whole host of factors, the ability to elicit support uh, within these areas, um, the extent to which uh, ideologies act as new ideologies act as corrosions to that support, the significance of um, intervention by hostile other powers. So for example, for the Portuguese in Africa, the extent to which uh, the support for independence movements from both the Soviet Union and China plays a role. You know, there are other factors that are significant. Some of those relate to technology. So in the case of the Soviets, the provision of advanced uh, or relatively advanced ground uh, to air missiles is important in lessening the Portuguese use of helicopters. Um, but there are other factors that are not thus relative, uh, relevant, and these include um, an ebbing of support in the domestic uh, environment. So French and Algiers are a classic example. It wasn't as though the French had been beaten, but the FLN had stayed in the struggle. Um, and so I think there's a whole host of factors that we need to think about. And, uh, you know, read, listeners may like to read my book on insurgency and counterinsurgency, which tries uh, to discuss that. Now, if we then move um, to the 16th and 17th century in Europe, that's a very interesting question because the argument that was taken, shall we say, um, 30 years ago, which was that there was development in a European core and that that development then diffused outwards, that European core developing things like volley fire, new uh, formations to uh, infantry formations to maximize volley fire, um, new types of fortification, the Tras Italien. That very much was the Parker interpretation, and he was not alone in that. I think now it's fairer to say, I mean, I think it was, you know, it was quite frankly, it was being criticized already from the beginning of the 90s. So this is not new. Um, but, you know, scholars have pointed out now for three decades that this was a mistaking of the variety of ways of and means of fighting in Europe, not least the different military 
uh, environment in Eastern Europe with its stronger emphasis on cavalry, for example, um, mm -hmm. and the extent to which uh, the Tras Italian didn't um, uh, take on everywhere, etc., etc. So I think one has to be careful here. Um, there are often significant differences even between militaries that might look similar. And, you know, if we go forward, if you think about the French Revolution in Napoleonic Wars, um, the French revolutionaries developed a particular tactical language, if you wish to use that term, and uh, it worked for them in some contexts. Um, but it was defeated not because the opponents copied it, um, and I certainly don't think you would describe the Russian army of uh, 1812 or the British army of 1815 as fighting in the same way as the French, but largely because the French had... Um, by poor strategy, um, created a situation in which it was very difficult for people in a lasting fashion to cooperate with them. So that you have um, these significant coalitions created and Napoleon beat some of them, but all he needs to do is to lose and, uh, and then he's collapsed, and he does that twice in 1814 and then again in 1815, and that's it, and it doesn't really matter what you might think about the effectiveness of the order mixed or a column advance or whatever, he's lost. And, and does he therefore lose because, does Napoleon the diplomat lose rather than Napoleon the soldier in that case? Well, I don't think you can be an effective strategist, which is what I think we're talking about here by Napoleon the soldier, unless you understand international relations and the context in which you're operating. And many, and that's incidentally a great problem with many of these rather facile and stupid books you can see out there on, you know, 100 great generals or 50 great military leaders or whatever you want to talk about. They're very facile because, to go back to what we're talking about, they assume that if you win at Austerlitz, you've won, everything's okay. Um, so I think one has to think in these kind of terms. But yes, to go back to your question, um, Napoleon the um, soldier is generally based um, upon the success of his 1800 campaign, the Marengo campaign, and his 1805-1806 campaigns, Alm Austerlitz and Jena, uh, and they were impressive. Um, but as you may know, uh, by 1809, he's well, even in fact by 1807, the Friedland Erlau campaigns against the Russians are nowhere near as successful. 1809, he finds the Austrians a much tougher nut than in 1805. So I would say that Napoleon the soldier should not uh, be eulogized. And of course, Napoleon the non 
diplomat, as it were, um, really does undercut um, uh, the, I mean, he's a real fool in 1812, in 1813, 1814, a real fool. Um, and, and, you know, unfortunately, uh, many brave people, both on the French side and in their opponent's side, died because of his folly. I, I wonder, I mean, you, you touched on the sort of, you know, 100 great generals and, and so on. I, the, the, at the more kind of popular end of, of military history, is there a tendency, not just now, but also um, uh, historically, to focus too much on uh, the great generals in terms of their generalship on the battlefield and not to have the fuller campaign experience? And in that, I also mean the getting the logistics and supply right. And indeed, if you look at, um, let's say, um, uh, commanders like the Duke of Marlborough in the in the War of the Spanish Succession, um, I mean, to, to what extent would a, would a general of his stamp actually be responsible for for the for the logistics, or was that just something that magically happened because there were other people he never met who made it happen? Oh, no. I mean, uh, Marlborough was very committed. I mean, as you may know, I've got a book just out on the history of logistics. Well, I don't know if you do know that, but uh, with the exciting title um, of Logistics, the Key to Victory. So I've got a book out on that. Um, uh, Marlborough was very concerned about his logistics and the logistics of the British Army uh, based in the Low Countries was considerably better than the contemporaneous British army in Spain. And although there were other factors for the failure of the latter, that certainly didn't help them. So, uh, and a man like the Duke of Argyle, uh, who was commander in chief of the British in um, the peninsula in 1710-11 was not as effective um, as as Marlborough in his um, logistical side. Um, but you're right. I mean, there are a whole range of skills to consider. And one of the key elements of considering skills is the peacetime preparedness and improvement of the military. Because war is not always a sustained process. Sometimes it is. 30 Years' War, for example, Vietnam, etc. But sometimes it's very short. I mean, um, Six Days' War, for example, or the notion of Jellicoe being the man that could have lost the war in an afternoon. Um, and it's likely that if there was full-scale hostilities, um, which I hope there wouldn't be, um, between China and the United States, that the whole thing would be settled in terms of the sinking of ships, the exchange of missile systems, very speedily. I mean, there might then be other stages, but that stage is likely to be very speedy. So therefore, as you correctly say, the peacetime preparedness of the military is important, but unfortunately that does not tend to interest popular writers. Uh, I mean, I did a book some years ago called Rethinking Military History, which uh, came out in 2004. And I have a chapter in it called The Sound of Guns, Military History Today. And I look in that at what had come out the previous year in the public sphere. 
and it was very much the sound of guns kind of book and uh, books and that is a problem because it encourages people to feel that that is the attitude that is necessary for military leadership actually military leadership involves keeping the military in a um, good war ready state it does not necessarily involve encouraging conflict it may well involve discouraging conflict um, and keeping them in a good war ready state can be more consequential than particular leadership in particular fields during conflict itself but it tends to be underrated right well uh, let's take um the, the second world war i mean you you um you write in your new book a, sh a short history of war that uh, well you, you you think it's very simplistic the idea that that it was a a clash between superior german soldiery and uh, superior allied resources can you just uh, flesh out a, a a little bit more why that's the case given that uh, particularly ultimately the, the allies did you know, by almost every measure have um, superior resources well, superior resources need to be used in particular fashions, but the key point I'm also making is that I think that the Wehrmacht has been overrated. Um, if you wish to use aggregate national ratings, and I'm not sure that's terribly helpful for multi-multi-multi-divisional uh, multi forces of the type we're talking about, um, so that there are obviously enormous variations within the Wehrmacht, as was understood by Wehrmacht leaders, okay? Um, but if you just wish to use the crudeness of a national aggregate, which I'm already mentioned I'm unhappy with, then the Wehrmacht was better at the tactical level, um, it was very poor at the strategic level, and the operational level, it varied some aspects of the operational level, such as logistics, it was awful at. Um, so the idea that the Wehrmacht is, and the same I would go for the Luftwaffe, I'd go for the same for the Kriegsmarine, the idea that these are necessarily brilliant military systems brought down in that fashion is, I think, deeply flawed. Right, right. And a, a, a final question, and it's really about bringing in, um, uh, I'm in danger of using the, that overused modern word holistic, but it, 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 bringing in the, the economic, the social and the political factors into the, into the study of war. It, is, there a, is there a danger that you know, a, a narrow focus on, on military history in terms of uh, what men in uniforms do and plan and how they react, it just simply can't capture the, the wider forces which are um, impinging and, and determining uh, what they do and, and how they do it. Yes, I would agree with that completely. Um, the, uh, the shock of conflict is extraordinarily important, but it's not the only aspect of war. Well, we will leave it there. Um, Professor Jeremy Black, whose new book, A Short History of War, is published this month. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the current offer of five issues for £10 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.